there was a well-known football coach, a well-known college football coach, uh, who was asked kind of a weird question uh, in an interview. The interviewer asked this college football coach, do you think that college football contributes to uh, lessening the problem, to fixing the problem of uh, physically unfit American people? Has college football helped fix the problem uh, of physical unfit nation, the nation of the United States of America? Has college football helped? And the coach, you know, is used to questions about, you know, Hey, how's your defense doing this year? And blah, 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 blah. And, and so the coach thought about it for a second and said, well, the way I see it, it really contributes nothing. <laughs> it contributes nothing because what you've got in a scenario like college football is 22 men down on the field working hard, desperately needing some rest. And you've got 75,000 people on the sides, on the sidelines, in the stands, watching, and who knows how many other people watching in their living rooms, on couches. And, and, and all of those people, they are the ones who desperately need some exercise. A similar situation exists in American churches today. It's not at all unusual to have a small group of diligent workers struggling down in the field while others on the sidelines are watching like spectators stuffing themselves with hot dogs and popcorn. The American church is a consumer culture, friends. It's a you pay others and watch others consumer culture. And and we're going at week five of this series to a pretty bold ask today. We're going to a pretty bold ask today of saying, it is your turn if you're on the sidelines watching. Perhaps you're not even aware there's a game going on. It is your turn to step up and engage with the God-designed context for His mission in the world to be spread. The truth of the matter, friends, is if you're sitting on the sidelines watching, you are sorely needed on the field in ways you can hardly comprehend. And here's why, in terms... Uh, that we've been using during this season. I'm sorry, sports. Um, During this series, if we are going to create a context within the body of believers, within this congregation, if we're going to create a context, create and protect a context of relational safety where people are known and loved, where they are safe to risk connection with one another, that's a bold ask, If we're going to do that, then we need your help in making that happen. Here's the theme that we've been working through in this series. It's on uh, the 3C Life Weekly in the back of the study notes. We'll put it on the wall here for you. The theme for this series is that God's family, the church, is called to be a place of spirit-led healing where His adopted children create and protect, that's what we're talking about today, creating and protecting, a context of relational safety where people are known and loved. Now, if we're going to create a context like that, then we need your help. 
We need to engage in this process. If we're to be an effective body of believers in creating and protecting a context of relational safety where people uh, don't just know as a pie-in-the-sky idea or this sort of amorphous, like, oh, theory, but in practice, they know that they are loved by God because they are loved by you, then we need your help in making that happen. We need your help. Here's why. We need your help. Because whether you believe this or not, it is super-duper true. Super-duper was not in my notes. We need your help. Because many view the church not as a context where you are known and you are loved. But they know the local church as a relational context where, frankly, the guiding principle is self Righteous judgmentalism. It is known to be a place of something other than love and safety and trust. And if people see it that way, it's because sometimes they have good reason to. In fact, even if you don't perceive the church that way and you know that the church is something constitutionally different we'll get to that later if you know that and perceive that to be something different than what i've just said you here today i would venture to say have i'd bet my whole life savings on this truth you have likely been hurt badly by people who claimed to love jesus so we we want to to be a place a context where relational safety is the guiding principle, where people are known and loved. And listen, as we talked about last week, we talked about the truth that we are fully known and fully loved by God. I mean, think of that. He knows everything about you and loves you fully, unconditionally. That's not just true of people we call his adopted children who are part of the family. That's not just true of people like us in these seats who know what it's like to be a context of church and call God Father. That's true of people who red-handed rebellion against him daily say, I hate you, God. Those people are fully known and fully loved by God. Now as we end this series and we say, hey, we're making a bold ask. We're asking to engage in this. If you're a guest today or you're new here at First Christian or maybe even you don't consider yourself a Christian yet, then please know we are not expecting you to instantly jump up and say, I'm in. Don't worry, we're, we're not expecting that of you. In fact, in fact, we want you to take a measured look at who we are and listen to what God is telling you before diving in. That's just wisdom. But if you are new or a guest with us today, um, or maybe don't consider yourself yet a Christian, today is a good look into who we're trying to be. This whole series is a good look into who we're trying to be uh, as people who create a context where you are uh, known and loved. A place where we Uh, commit to God's work uh, in our lives. But, but, if you're a regular attender or a member, then I am indeed talking to you. Because you're the folks for whom I'm saying, we need your help. 
There is too much work to do in connecting with people who desperately, desperately need Jesus to sit around and watch others do the work. And when you do, when you sit on the sidelines, you have functionally said, you have functionally said, I don't want to go any further in my maturity or growth as a believer in Christ. You have functionally said, I hold at arm's length what God has for me as the God-designed context for my growth. If you continue to say, it's okay and good and right for me to sit on the sidelines. So straight up, at the beginning, the question today is, is God calling you to join with us to officially and publicly commit to the local church so that you can help? And some of you already know that your answer to this question is yes. <laughs> In the Bible, there are two ways that describe an official and public commitment to Christ and his church. Baptism and membership, as we've mentioned there before. Baptism and membership are steps to help uh, join in that steps you can take to help us create that context of safety. And the first of these, baptism, the first of these, baptism, can seem, if you're sort of unfamiliar with the, the ceremony of baptism, uh, it can seem like a bit of a weird way to officially and, and publicly commit to a group of people. So somebody, if you're not familiar with it, might think, so wait, you, 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 want me, <laughs> you want me to hold my breath while some other person takes me and pushes me under the water. Uh, yeah, that's actually what we're calling you to. Uh, true story, I've had many people uh, make me promise I would, in fact, uh, bring them up out of the water. But despite the sort of weirdness of the ceremony, if you're unfamiliar with it, Baptism fits well as a way to commit publicly. And here's why. Baptism is like a press conference. Baptism is like a press conference that announces your commitment to Christ and to his church. It's like when big-time professional athletes uh, are part of a team, when they sign up on that team. It's like they, they, they do this process of signing a contract which binds them to the team. And then they hold this public press conference to announce to announce this newly formed allegiance. They say, hey, we are now on the same team. In fact, usually the athlete holds up a jersey uh, with the name on it, with a number on it, turn it around. It's got the name of the team right there. It's clear that they are on the same team. This is baptism. A public announcement of your commitment to the team. And it's a chance with your friends and your family around to celebrate you holding up your new jersey and you saying, I'm on this team with you and we're together in this amazing work that God is doing. Did you know that Jesus, <laughs> Jesus actually held a press conference. I'm not just making this up. He held a press conference in Mark 1, 9 to 11. If you haven't turned there, make sure you do that now. Uh, Mark 1, 9 to 11. Yeah, this is one of those things that happens in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Job. A few of you looked up like, what? Just making sure you're awake. I know it's Jeremiah. So this is, this is one of those things that happens in all four of the Gospels because it's a pretty significant thing, this public sort of baptism press conference here. So Mark is the second of the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, if you're unfamiliar, the beginning of the New Testament where we learn about Jesus' life. It's called the Gospels. 
And up to this point in Jesus' life, in Mark 1, we know very little about Jesus. We know very little. He's about 30 years old. We don't know much about the life of Jesus before this. All we really know is that he faithfully and humbly grew as a child and into adulthood under the authority of his parents, Mary and Joseph. And he learned from his father, Joseph, the trait of being a carpenter. We don't know anything in terms of preaching before this, his miracles before this, no public ministry before this. So at this point, Jesus' baptism is a major transition into his public ministry. It's his press conference. It's an announcement of his transition from carpentry, really, to being on a different, not different, but a different team in the same, you know, sport, we'll say. So let's look together at Mark 1, 9 to 11 couple cool things that help us understand this press conference, this baptism press conference of Jesus. We'll read the whole thing and jump back in at nine. It says this, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Verse 10, and when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. Verse 11, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Look at verse nine. He says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. In those days, press pause, is a phrase that doesn't just mean like at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. uh, Before that, there wasn't much time. What it means is it's kind of a power-packed phrase. It means in those days when the people of God had been hearing nothing from him because there was no prophet in the land. For 400 years between the Testaments, we call it this, this time of silence. And the people of God were like, hello, where are you? No prophets telling us anything. What are we supposed to do? Hello, Lord. So in this period of silence, in those days, it said, this is significant, the next two words, in those days, Jesus came. In those days, Jesus came. It says he came from Nazareth of Galilee. That fulfills prophecy. And was baptized by John in the Jordan. A whole bunch of stuff here fulfills prophecy. So in those days, silence from the prophets, 400 years of the people of God wondering, what are we supposed to do, Lord? It says, in those days, Jesus came. Then verse 10, and when he came up out of the water after having been baptized by John, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Two things to note there about the end of that verse. Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. This phrase here, the heavens being torn apart, is language that Mark intentionally borrows, draws, steals from Isaiah 64, verse 1. If you're a note taker, 64, verse 1. Super cool context in Isaiah. Uh, You could... Spend hours in this like I did. The phrase here about the heavens being torn open is from 64.1, where the prophet Isaiah is begging God. He says this. He says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Oh, that you would rend or or tear, same word we're using here, uh, that Mark is using here in Mark 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. So in Isaiah, long story short, the people of Israel had rejected God. The people of Israel had rejected God and the prophet Isaiah is crying out on their behalf for freedom from their spiritual slavery. He knew that they were so hard-hearted 
that it would take God's powerful intervention in their lives. And so he was begging God on their behalf, begging God to free them, just as he had done in the Exodus. Back in the Exodus, they were in slavery, and God freed them and led them out of that slavery into freedom. So that's what he's hearkening to. That's what he's talking about here when it says he came up out of the water. Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. He is saying here, coupled with this idea of the Spirit descending, he's saying, this is what you've been waiting for. In the person of Jesus, the heavens are being torn open and God is coming down in the person of Jesus. Cool stuff. It also says the Spirit was descending on him like a dove where it speaks there in verse 10 of the Spirit descending on him, on Jesus, like a dove. And that's the concept that we also find in Isaiah. Uh, for note takers, 33, I'm sorry, 32.15, Isaiah 32.15, 44.3, and 63.10-14. Isaiah 32.15, 44.3, and 63.10-14. This is the concept that we find there, this idea that when God finally comes down to free his people once and for all, he will pour forth his Spirit. He will pour forth His Spirit. So, the Spirit descending on Him like a dove is Mark's way of saying, the long-awaited new exodus has begun. The baptism of Jesus signals God coming to save His people from their sins. It's a marker in Jesus' life. It's His press conference. It's his public declaration of the team he's on. Now, if baptism is the press conference, if baptism is the press conference, uh, membership is more like uh, practice. It's more like practice. It's the church working together uh, in terms we're using in this series, working together to create a context and protect the context of relational safety. You see, it's one thing to say, it's one thing to say, we need to make disciples. It's an entirely different thing, and more important thing, to do the hard work of together creating a culture of making disciples. Membership is a rubber-meets-the-road consequence of the church turning spiritual experience of God into action. It's putting together the pieces of individual giftedness, individual giftedness so that more can be accomplished because to create and to protect a context of trust and relational safety with one another is no small task it requires a whole bunch of really sold out to jesus people now there's a lot that we could say about membership and i'm sorry but we only have time to sort of superficially introduce the basic gist but there's some cool stuff in first corinthians 12 to look at that helps us understand uh some about membership And uh, there's some stuff that we're not going to get to that's listed in your study notes there. Uh, Some of those practical consequences of membership, the benefits of membership, and what it means to be a part of the local body of believers that I'll just let you look at later. So 1 Corinthians 12, let's look at that together. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 27. We're not going to read the whole thing. We're just going to dive in. It says this, verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body... So it is with Christ. Anybody confused yet? Jump back at verse 12. It says, For just as the body is one. This is written by Paul to a local congregation 
not working well together in this whole membership body, being on the same mission kind of thing. And so he's writing to them, he's saying, what you need to understand is that the body is constitutionally unified. It is constitutionally one. You can think differently, you can perceive differently, you can experience differently, we all have. (laughs) But what it actually is, is one body that is unified in Christ, just as Christ is with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. That's why he says, just as the body is one, it has many members. He goes from the one body to many members, then he does that in reverse. And also the members of the body, one body, same point, just stated in reverse. Just as that is the case, so it is with Christ. Just like Christ is one with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, the body is unified. For, verse 13, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. And he says Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, people from all kinds of experiences, backgrounds, a diversity of giftedness. In one spirit, we were baptized into that body. All of us, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, green billions, green city people, green countyans, even Cock County and maybe uh, even uh, other counties. We were all made to drink of one spirit in one body the holy spirit regardless of our background regardless of our experience the holy spirit is the source that feeds and makes the body happen for in one spirit we were baptized into one body and all made to drink of one spirit verse 14 for the body does not consist of one member but of many this is paul's way of saying hey let me just make an important point about the diversity of the body and here's the point verse 15 if the foot should say because i'm not a hand i do not belong to the body that would not make it any less a part of the body. It's an interesting statement. <laughs> if, the, if the body is actually constitutionally one in Christ and in the Spirit's leading of it, and he says, the foot can't say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. He says, that doesn't make it any less a part of the body. In other words, just because you may think you're not important, or people treat you like you're not important. Or you may perceive that your tiny little piece of the huge body of Christ in the whole world, you may perceive or think or feel that that is important. Paul says, that doesn't actually mean that it is unimportant. (laughs) He's saying that doesn't actually make you less a part of the body. He says the same thing, just a different example, verse 16. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body that would not make it any less a part of the body. He says if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? He's talking about the need for various parts of the body here. He says if the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? He's saying every single part plays a a, a vital role in the way the body works. He's saying we need you. That's what he's saying. We need you because God designed this to be the context within which he brings people to himself. Isn't that crazy? What an enormously amazing project that is. God's doing stuff we can't even even begin to understand. That's where he begins to say that part about his mission happening through the body. Verses 18 and following. He says, but as it is, God arranged the members of the body. And each one of them, as he chose... If all were a single member, where would the body be? Well, it wouldn't work. As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So this variety of people 
joined together is what makes mission happen. Verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts, our modest parts, are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Look at this verse, verse 26. This is a test of how you know a body works or doesn't. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Then he restates in summary, verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Friends, to be a member of the church is to participate in this amazing work that God is doing of bringing people to himself, of changing lives. And at the end of the series, and in light of hearing what we've heard today, I mean, we want you to engage in this process. To engage in this local congregation of believers being a place where God can do work on us and in us and through us. It's not about getting more people in the pews. It's about creating and protecting a context where we can participate with God doing the amazing work of changing people's lives. That's the most important thing to which you could ever give yourself. And friends, there's too much work. There's too much work to do it alone. Here's the crazy thing about how God designed this. It cannot work apart and it only works when we do it together. We cannot do it apart, but we can do it together. So we need you to join the team. Even if you're already a member and maybe you're just warming the bench. Even if <laughs> you don't know Jesus and don't know how to get to the playing field, we have people who can usher you along in that process to which God's called you. Even if you're already a player and you're on the field and you're being called to greater sacrifice. If you've been on the field for a while and you need a break because you're hurting, we have people ready to step in for you. That's how this works in a body that has a variety. We need you to join the team. We need you so that we can build this church together. It's the only way it works. There was a little boy who was introduced to vacation Bible school one evening and it had been going on for a couple of days and he came on like the third day or so and when the boy came in, the teacher noticed that he was missing an arm. And so the teacher was real nervous that one of the other children might say something uh, insensitive or that might make the, the boy feel like he's not a part of them. 
Well, at the end of the evening, she was real excited because everything had gone smoothly. Nobody said anything weird. Uh, the boy didn't feel like, you know, I'm the weirdo here. He didn't feel like an outcast. And everything went great. <laughs> so she was about to dismiss the kids. About to dismiss the kids. And uh, she went to do the usual thing she had done. And uh, some of you all probably did this as a kid too. She said, okay, kids, let's make our churches. And she took her two hands and she put them together. And she said, here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open the door in that moment. Uh, the awful truth of that moment it struck her then. The very thing she had feared the kids would do for this little boy, say to this little boy she had done herself. She just stood there just kind of, Speechless and not sure what to do. <laughs> well, right then, this little girl uh, sitting next to this boy, he reached, she reached over to his hand, grabbed it and placed it next to her hand and said, hey, let's build the church together. Friends, that's the only way this works. We need you to be a part of this context we're building where the Spirit works in our lives to create in our relationships a place of trust and of healing and of safety. A place where you, because of relationship with people, can experience the truth that God fully knows you and He fully loves you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we we're gathered here because you've sent your son Jesus to live the perfect sinless life we have tried and tried and tried to live and failed and failed and failed at living. We know the constancy of failure and we've experienced our limitations in ways that make us realize without you, we are nothing, Lord. Without the amazing truth that you came in the person of Jesus to live a per perfect and sinless life for us, to be sacrificed as our lamb for us when we should have been the lamb who was sacrificed. And yet, our imperfect lives would have meant that sacrifice couldn't have worked. Only a lamb who was sinless and pure without blemish works. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus and that he took on the weight of our sin. And when we deserve your wrath and your justified anger at our sin, while we were still sinners, 
Christ died. The godly for the ungodly. We give you praise and we give you glory for that truth, Lord. And we ask that because of that good news of the victory over sin that we experience through Jesus who was resurrected, we can be people who live resurrection lives of victory, continuing to push into those places that require trust. We ask, Lord, uh, through bold prayers, that your spirit would move in our hearts and in our lives. That we would give ourselves to creating and to protecting a place where the amazing can happen. Where you tear open the heavens and come down. And people come to know you and trust you and their lives are changed. We ask, Lord, for the faith and for the courage to continue to step into that work. We could name reason after reason for why it might be something we don't want to do. But, Lord, because you've gone before us, we trust that it's worth us saying yes to. So Lord, we ask that uh, creating and protecting this context of relational safety would not be something we do in our own work, but would be something that you have done through your Spirit's work in us. That's how people will know that this is a context worthy of their trust. Lord, we ask that you'd move among us In the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Simply put, 